I'm going to begin this morning with a series of messages that are taken from the last book of the Bible. And as you know, anytime a pastor stands up to preach from the Revelation, uh, there's all kinds of things that come to mind. And if you've been a student of the book of Revelation, you recognize that there are various ways that people read the book and talk about the book. Uh, One of the questions that is always asked about this book of symbols and some frightening imagery is, when are these things to be fulfilled? And there's a couple different schools of thought. Some folks think that most of it has already been fulfilled with the persecution of the Romans and there's still some that's left to be fulfilled. Some think that all of it is still in the future. I don't have any, um, any reason during this particular uh, passage and this particular series of sermons to, have, to state an opinion on that. You could believe whatever you want to believe about how all of the prophetic utterances of Revelation are fulfilled. I have a strong opinion about that, but my fear is if I give you my opinion, you'll be distracted by my opinion and you won't hear what the letters have to say to us today. And so I really want us to focus in uh, on these letters this morning. I'm gonna be relying heavily in this series of messages on a book called Seven Deadly Spirits that was written by Scott Daniels. Now you may or may not know that Scott Daniels just last week was elected as one of our new general superintendents in the Church of the Nazarene. So it's timely that I have been preparing these and now we're gonna get to hear uh, some of the thinking that one of our newest general superintendents uh, has published. And so I wanna begin by reading the very a start of uh, the, the book of Revelation. So if you head back to the very end of your Bible, this is the first chapter of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ as given to John. Okay, this is Jesus revealing things to us through John. This is how it goes, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all people on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What a beginning. This letter begins with words of grace and the blessing of peace. It's really important to know the setting of the letter. That's sort of how ancient letters were written. put out the setting first, and then you gave the specifics as you went on. And the setting is that we are being shown love, grace, and peace from God at the beginning. The reason it's really important to know the setting is because not all of the words that come are going to be pleasant, right? Not all the words that come are going to be pleasant. But the revelation comes from one who loves us. 
The revelation comes from one who desires that we live in peace. But the fact that the one who addresses us, loves us and wishes us peace, that is not license for casual or apathetic attitudes when it comes to the content of what is going to be revealed. For the one who is speaking is God himself, the Father Almighty, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, and the sevenfold spirit. As you heard earlier, seven is the number of completeness. And by identifying the spirit as the sevenfold spirit, John is saying, this spirit is complete, fully God in and of himself. The Holy Spirit isn't like a lesser form of God that we can ignore. What we've been given to live in us is fully God. The fullness of God invades every Christian life. And so we need to listen to what the Spirit has to say to us. And we need to take it seriously. Even though it's in a setting of love and grace and peace, the words are important. They're definitive. They're authoritative for us. And so we listen when the Spirit speaks. The God who loves us, who freed us from our sins, the one who made us to be a kingdom that exists to serve this God, that God is deserving of worship and adoration. Don't miss this important information in the beginning. We exist to serve and glorify this God. So we start with this grand picture of who God is. We are given a statement of purpose and then John launches into telling us the revelation of what he has received. Now some of the important information from that first chapter is this, that when John confronts this vision, he simply collapses to the ground. He is completely undone. The vision itself is enough to cause John to fall to the ground as if he's dead. There is nothing to prepare us for a true picture of God. If we happen to get a glimpse of the glory of God, we would also be completely undone, just as John is. Somehow, that little piece of knowledge, if we really believed it, would be enough to get us to respond immediately to everything that God reveals about these churches. If we, if we can understand that just a glimpse of the glory of God is enough to utterly ruin us, then we would pay much closer attention to what he has to say to us. And there would be no hesitation in doing what he called us to do. Because once you get a picture of how amazing and powerful and majestic this God is, obedience is the only logical or appropriate response. And so now we have to listen to what's being said. Pastor Daniels, when he talks about these seven letters, he has a particular understanding of what is meant by the word angel. When you look at the, the words uh, that are given to the beginning of each of these seven letters, each of the letters is written to the angel of the church of city, and then they fill in a different city. 
And people have interpreted the meaning of that in different ways. Uh, some folks say um, the angel is the pastor of the church. Now, you've known enough pastors to know that that's unlikely. Other folks think it's an actual angel that maybe is charged to protect a church. Um, the problem is, if, if, if it was referring to actual, the angels of the church, there, there's different words that could have been used that would make a little more sense. What, what is he really saying, and what does the, the word angelos translate to? And what Pastor Daniels says, and something that I've come to agree with, is that we should understand the term angels in this context as the spirit of a particular church. And he talks about it like this. Every church develops a personality of its own. And the personality or spirit is the result of a variety of things, different things. Some of these things impact the spirit that emerges from a particular congregation. What is the place of worship or building like? What are the educational and economic levels of the congregation? What theological orientation, leadership styles, and power structures exist in the congregation? How does the congregation handle conflict? What is corporate worship like? Is it liturgical or is it classical, energetic or quiet? How do people grow in Christ? What do people in the congregation think about themselves and their place in the community? These things, when all taken together, when all piled together, create a unique identity for every church. None of these questions individually define a local church, but when we put them all together, a particular spirit begins to emerge. We talk about churches that feel warm and inviting. What, what makes a church warm and inviting? We talk about churches that have creative and energetic worship experiences, and we describe them as relevant or engaging or modern. What makes us feel that these churches are engaging or up to date? We talk about churches that are dead, even though they're still meeting every week. What leads us to that conclusion? The six things I mentioned previously are, are component parts that when taken together, become more than the individual parts themselves. In many ways, the spirit of the church is the sum of its parts. It's more than the congregation, more than the pastor, more than the church board, more than the programs, more than the orthodoxy of their beliefs, more than the number of compassionate ministries they operate, more than the giftedness of their Sunday school teachers, more than the size of their youth group or children's group, more than their average yearly offering or budget. But if you throw all those things together, a spirit emerges, a personality, an identity. And what Pastor Daniels believes is that it is that identity that's being challenged in each of these letters. And notice there are seven letters written, seven churches selected. And we probably should understand from that that these seven churches representing these seven spirits is complete again. It's, it's the fullness number. So these are, these are letters that are for everyone, for the whole church, even though just seven individual churches are going to be addressed. And so John says, he who has ears to hear, and then 
puts into practice what he hears, he will be blessed. And so we need ears to hear today. And we're gonna start with the church in Ephesus. So this is chapter two, verse one. We'll take on one letter this morning. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Excellent, all those things are great. Verse four, but you hate it when that word comes along, right? Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This short letter to the Ephesian church has essentially two critical parts. You could almost hear John say, hey Ephesus, there's good news and there's bad news. Which do you want first? And so the good news is clearly spelled out. Ephesus is an important city in part because of its location. Water access, a deep harbor, made it a major trading center and a hub of economic growth. This meant that many different people passed through the city because access was easy and Ephesus is centrally, lo centrally located. It's also the largest city in Asia Minor under Roman control. This isn't, I don't want you to think back to like a little religious town in the Old Testament, Bethlehem or something like this. This is 400,000 to 500,000 people at the time of this writing. So think Kansas City or Atlanta or Miami or Colorado Springs. It's a big, big city with lots of different cultures and people flowing through all the time. So this is a place of constant transition because of the different ideas and cultures that merge in this one place. So when you hear the commendation of Christ for the church, you need to understand that they are working hard to avoid heresies. They don't want anything sneaking in to teach them some other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have tested the teachings of those who came and told them that they were apostles. And in some cases, they were not apostles. But because Ephesus held to the true faith, they were able to discern what was true and what was not true. They also did this. When they found something was false, they rejected it. They had nothing to do with the wicked. You know, in an economic crossroads like Ephesus, where business flourishes, people who take advantage also flourish. But they rejected evil. 
The third thing they did was they resisted false prophets and teachers who claimed to be part of the Christian faith. They stayed true to Christ and the teaching of the true apostles. And because they did that, it cost them. There was a price that they had to pay. They suffered for the stand that they took. We know that's true, right? Anytime you stand for Christ, there is a price to be paid. We have to protect ourselves from an immoral culture, governments who seek to invade our lives, and the teachings of so-called Christian celebrity leaders who teach all kinds of things on television in the name of Christ. And often we learn years later that there was a backstory behind all of that that had nothing to do with the gospel. The Ephesians resisted all of that and kept their doctrine pure. I mean, that sounds great so far. You could almost allow yourself to believe that preserving doctrinal purity is enough in the days that we live in. But it wasn't enough then and it's not enough now. Because here comes the yet, here comes the but in the story. You've worked hard, you've been attacked, you haven't given in, you have rejected false teachers, but you have forsaken your first love. In all their consuming passion to get doctrine right, they have forgotten that love is central to all that the true gospel teaches. Without love at the center of things, none of it hangs together. And so we readers are left with this question. Is there a connection between hypersensitivity to moral purity and loss of love? Are those two connected somehow? Let, let me put it this way. Is there something about Ephesus' continual emphasis on moral perfection that has led them to lose focus on the mission to love others and bring them to Christ? I mean, there's a problem there. It's possible that when the church tries to enforce strict boundaries on themselves and others, they have a tendency to build walls that exclude others rather than make ways for others to come in. William Barclay wrote it this way. It may be that hard, critical fault-finding had banished the spirit of love. Strict orthodoxy can cost too much if it is bought at the price of love. Christians who are rightly concerned about the purity of faith and doctrine can become so obsessed by that concern by that, concern that they begin to look at each other askance or look at others with odd eyes and love is set aside. Correct theology becomes the hallmark of true faith and love is of secondary importance. This is a difficult criticism. I watched some of the debate from the General Assembly last week. I heard one delegate at our General Assembly debating a particular issue say something like this. Well, I agree love is important, but what about correct teaching about sin? There isn't any correct teaching about sin 
that isn't first of all motivated by love. If we for a second think that we can shout sharp rebukes at people because they don't meet our standard for sin, then we've lost the centrality of the gospel. Anyone who is talking about sin and judgment, Christian folks should be doing it with a tear in their eye, broken that anyone has to endure the consequences of sin. But when we put on our judge hat and begin to judge the world in terms of sin without the love of Christ for that same world in our heart, then we are practicing malpractice in terms of theology because love is central to the proclamation of morality and sin and every other thing we say. You say, Pastor, you're saying we shouldn't have standards? Of course not. We're given standards in the scriptures. But if those standards become more important than our love for God and our love for neighbor, we're no longer living consistent with the things that Jesus taught us. What did Jesus say were the most important things? Right? And anything we had to say follows from that. Jesus didn't demand us to clean up our act before we could become his children. He accepted us as we are because he loved us. Then the change followed once we were part of his family. Have we forgotten the centrality of love? Are you so angry with the culture that we've become warriors rather than lovers? Lovers of God and lovers of people? Do we live with an attitude that says those sinners deserve what they'll get? Or are we grieving the sin that destroys our loved ones? The spirit of Ephesus is the spirit of boundary keeping. And it has the potential to keep us separated from our brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbors in the community who need to know Jesus so desperately. And if we're consumed with making sure we set the theological record straight all the time, then we're going to have difficulty being in step with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who we Wesleyans especially know, is the Spirit of love filling us so that we can love others. Please don't hear me say that right doctrine isn't important. If theology didn't matter, there was no reason for me to go to seminary and get that graduate degree. Right thinking wouldn't matter. We wouldn't spend so much time studying scripture. But everything is in its proper place in the kingdom. And 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us, right? And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. You know, as I've wrestled this week with this letter to the Ephesians, I have to confess that uh, my church hasn't always done an exceptional job of maintaining love as its first priority. At times we've attempted to create checklists of behaviors 
to describe what a holiness lifestyle looks like. And, and I, I applaud the effort to do that because there is no reliable guidance from the culture to give us any idea of how we ought to live. And so we have to say some things to protect folks who are still in formation from evil practices that have the potential to ruin them. And yet no checklist ever created helps us to love others well or live lives of love. Love is always lived out in relationships with people. And love is not what you feel towards another person. Love is the way you act towards other persons. Not too many years ago, I heard General Superintendent Jerry Porter tell this story about his backyard barbecue. So he retired from the superintendency, which meant he could actually have a life of his own. Bought a house, he and his wife moved into a neighborhood that they felt like God was leading them to. And in a very short time after they moved there, they wanted to get to know their neighbors. So they invited all the neighbors around their house to come over for a barbecue. And all the neighbors came. And they had the grill set up in the backyard and they were flipping the hamburgers and doing, and doing the dogs and all that kind of stuff. And the party was fun, it was fine, and when it was over, he said, I had this experience for the first time in my life that I've never had before. I was walking around the backyard picking up empty beer cans from the beverages that some of my neighbors had brought. And I thought, how is this gonna look to see a general superintendent picking up empty beer cans out of his backyard? He said, but then I thought about this and I said, what was most important? Is it most important that I develop a relationship with my neighbors, a loving, supportive relationship with my neighbors, so that I have the possibility down the road to tell them about the love of God for them? Or should I have had someone standing at the driveway frisking everyone down to make sure no one ever brought a beer can into my yard? What would the two messages look like and feel like, right? Again, I'm not saying that our standards don't matter, but I am saying we must lead with love. And if we've gotten to the place where we have forgotten what it means to love others, if, if a spirit of boundary keeping has invaded us and we are much more concerned about telling the world what's right or wrong than we are with loving God himself and allowing him to love others through us, we've missed the boat. And, and the words of Jesus are, are pretty striking. If you don't return to your first love, the consequences will be drastic for you. We must return to that love. The good news is there's still hope for us, but only if we return to our first love, only if we remember the love of Christ for us and how it changes us and how it propels us to love others. In my first church, 306 years ago, I had a woman come to church on a Sunday morning who was very excited to tell me 
that she had told her neighbor lady about our church. She had gone over to the back fence, new neighbor lady moved into town, and she was excited to tell this neighbor lady about our church. And so they started a conversation, and the lady said, you know, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to the Church of the Nazarene. Well, what do you believe? And she answered the lady, well, we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't go to dances, we don't, and I stopped her after about a minute of her explaining what we don't do to the neighbor, and I said, did you mention Jesus? Did you mention how much we love Jesus? Did you mention that we believe that the Holy Spirit of God fills us at our conversion and gives us this overwhelming desire to love others so that they can know that God loves them as well? Did you miss that part? And she got really quiet. I pray that when anyone asks you what this church stands for or what it believes, that the first thing that comes to your mind is that we love Jesus. And that the love of Christ compels us to love our neighbors and others so that they can know the love of God for themselves. That's the first thing. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, since this is one of seven letters written to the full expression of the church, how are we doing that individually? Have we, have we forgotten how much we loved Jesus when we first came to him? Is the Holy Spirit still enabling us to love others? In this contentious day that we live in, when the conversation is so violent and negative and profane, is the Holy Spirit able, powerful enough to enable us to love those kinds of people? Because he is able if we do not defeat him in the process. He is able to help us love anyone on the planet if we will open ourselves to him. And so we have to ask ourselves this hard question. I'll give you one hint about what I believe about the entire book of Revelation. And that is this. The more difficult things get on earth, the more important it is for the church to worship. We must be focused on Christ all the time. That's the most important thing for us. And so at the end of each of these sermons, as rough as it gets, we will end in worship. We will end in worship because he is worthy of our worship and we must fix our attention on him and he is worthy of our love for all that he has done for us because he has delivered us from darkness and given us life in the kingdom of his son and so we are people of praise always and we are people that are filled with the love of God for us, always for us and we must worship. And so band members, if you come back, we're gonna sing worthy is the lamb because he's the one who's speaking to us, the one who fills us by our spirit and enables us to love. Heavenly Father, by your spirit, speak to our hearts, show us your truth, guide us as your children.
and receive the praise that we now sing. Amen. And now may the love of the Father be poured into your heart. May the love of Christ be an example for you. And may the Holy Spirit so fill you with love that your every thought is an expression of his love to his glory, now and always. Amen.